Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, Ken, we've had quite a couple of weeks here. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the hundreds of you who joined newly as paying subscribers to Serious Trouble in order to hear our long episode last week on the indictment of Donald Trump. And in a way, something that we've been waiting for for several years as we've covered Donald Trump's extensive legal difficulties. Um, and we have another souped up episode for you this week, and, and we're really glad to have you here and on an ongoing basis. We're discussing that Dominion case, and we'll be talking about goat law uh, for all listeners. Uh, We then have a discussion only for paying subscribers, following on from last week's discussion about the Manhattan DA's indictment of Donald Trump. Um, We got some really interesting feedback, some interesting questions, pushing back on especially my skepticism about the strength of this case, uh, and we'll be answering some of those questions, uh, but again, only for paying subscribers. So if you're not a paying subscriber, uh, I would encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can become one for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll get every full episode of this show, at least 40 episodes a year. Um, In fact, actually, this is the 41st episode uh, of the show, and we've only been at this for 10 months. So it's significantly more than 40 episodes a year. Um, But again, you can go there, uh, join, and then uh, you'll be able to hear that conversation and all the further ones. But first, we want to discuss a big news story that we ordinarily would have devoted a lot of time to last week, except, you know, for the even bigger news story of the Trump indictment. And this has to do with Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News and Fox Corporation uh, for defamation. So as we've discussed in in recent months on this show, there were summary judgment motions from both sides, uh, Fox asking the court to throw out this defamation case, basically saying these were statements of opinion. These were fair reports on allegations made by the sitting U.S. president that were obviously newsworthy. Um, Fox saying none of none of what was said on our air was actionable defamation against Dominion. Dominion saying the things that were said on Fox's air were so obviously false and defamatory that they should get summary judgment. They should win without even having to go to trial. And so the the judges ruled on all of these motions. He denied the summary judgment motions from Fox News and Fox Corporation. And he ruled in part for Dominion. It's actually kind of similar to some of the stuff that happened in the Tesla shareholder lawsuit that we discussed uh, some, some months ago, where you had the judge here in the Dominion case saying that a number of these statements that were made on Fox's air uh, were false statements of fact. He's ruled on that. The jury will not have to rule on that. Uh, and that they were defamation per se. Can you explain what it means that these statements were defamation per se? Sure. Defamation per se is just a category that means that you don't have to prove special damages, that some minimum level of damages is presumed. Normally in defamation, you have to prove how you were damaged in some economic or other way. And historically, there's always been a category of things like accusing someone of committing a crime where you can presume some level of damages. And actually, it's an interesting sort of history of America's anxieties and prejudices if if you look at what has been defamation per se over the years, from accusing someone of unchastity to accusing (laughs) them of having a loathsome disease to saying that they're gay to saying that they are mixed race to – it's really kind of a catalog of whatever uh, bug we have up our ass at any given time. (laughs) And so why is this defamation per se? It's defamation per se because it's accusing them of participating in a crime and a cover-up and of uh, being incompetent at their chosen business. Mm-hmm. 
And so, but then there are other things that the judge has not ruled on yet. The two key things are, did Fox act with actual malice uh, when these statements were made on its air, which is to say, were the statements made knowing that they were false or with reckless disregard for the truth? And the court also did not rule on the amount of damages. Uh, defamation per se means that there was, there's presumed to be some damage, but there's a major dispute between Dominion and Fox News about whether these statements damaged Dominion's business at all and whether they damaged it to the tune of billions of dollars, which Fox can that Dominion is not a valuable enough company to have suffered that amount of damage. So there will be a jury trial here, assuming this doesn't settle. And I think there are good reasons to think it won't settle. And basically, the jury will be charged with making those decisions. Did Fox know or act with reckless disregard for the truth when it broadcast these statements? And how damaging was that to Dominion? Yes. Now, now, this is pretty unusual. Remember when we talked about this before, we talked about how it's pretty aggressive for a plaintiff to bring a summary judgment motion saying, basically, we don't need to have a trial. Uh, this is so clear. Pretty weird to win on that. So the judge, while not completely getting rid of the jury trial, has dramatically narrowed the issues in Dominion's favor. And that's a big uh, help for them, in part just because it narrows the trial so much. It makes it much easier to try. But you have to remember, even though it seems like the judge has handed them you know, three-fourths of uh, the case as a win, that's no guarantee. You know, in the Tesla case that you mentioned, Josh, uh, the judge had ruled that Elon Musk's uh, Twitter comments were false and statements of fact, and it was just an issue of uh, intent. Uh, this is when Elon study. Musk claimed that he had funding secured to take Tesla private at $420 a share. Exactly. So the plaintiffs won partial summary judgment on that, narrowed the issues, and still lost in front of a jury. And mm -hmm. anything can happen, uh, particularly with cases like this that are very politically and culturally charged. So one thing I found interesting in here uh, is that uh, the judge is talking about this question of whether the uh, whether the statements were false. These uh, the statements about Dominion having rigged the election, having had an algorithm to transfer votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And he notes that Dominion asserted in their motion for summary judgment that if you deny summary judgment on those questions, that requires the court to find that a reasonable juror today could think that Dominion actually committed election fraud, which is to say that there has to be a. Uh, genuine dispute over these questions of, you know, did they steal the election? And then the judge goes on later in his in his ruling when he's talking about these statements, and he says that uh, comparing the allegations at issue to the truth, the truth had, would have likely had a different outcome on the average viewer, as the statements at issue were dramatically different from the truth. And then he says... Although it cannot be attributed directly to Fox's statements, it is noteworthy that some Americans still believe the election was rigged. I'm interested in how that goes back to the reasonable juror question. You know, if much of the country, if, you know, a quarter of the country or something believes that the election was in fact rigged, can you really say that no reasonable juror would be open to the idea that the election was rigged? That's, that's a great question. But and, and that goes directly to sort of the role of a judge as a gatekeeper versus the role of a jury. And I think the idea is that if something is false in a way that you can't prove to a judge. We don't care that you might prove it to a jury. Um, there are mm -hmm. plenty of things in cases that might sway a jury that we don't allow. Uh, we don't allow parties to attack witnesses on the basis of their race or religion or other things that jurors might find convincing because of their prejudices, uh, but we believe legally are irrelevant and inflammatory. And so, yes, you could see this as sort of a gatekeeping function by the judge that even if 
some people are going to stubbornly believe some things without proof, we're not going to treat them as true. And so then where does the standard of what's reasonable come from then? Isn't that subjective? It is not. It's more objective. Uh, The whole reasonable person test, uh, you know, formerly most of the time reasonable man test, uh, has long been criticized as sort of a construct of the mind, uh, the the approach of a hypothetical person and, and not a real person. And it's subject to a lot of criticism about, you know, who is this reasonable person? Uh, where do they come from? Uh, what culture are they from? How educated are they? And all these things that illustrate that reasonable people can come from dramatically different backgrounds and have dramatically different takes on things. So uh, this is a good way of illustrating how kind of the failures of the entire concept. When you do have a country where so many people believe that, you're in effect saying, uh, you know, I, the judge, am deciding that large portions of America uh, are completely unreasonable. And then we can have philosophical Mm -hmm. discussions about whether or not that's a good thing. And so, Ken, you you noted that Dominion sort of won on three quarters or so of the things they needed to demonstrate. That doesn't mean they're out of the woods. In addition to the fact that juries can be unpredictable, isn't it also that showing actual malice is basically the most difficult part of proving defamation? It is. Uh, It's a very high standard, as we've talked about many times before, requiring to prove that they knew it was false or showed reckless disregard, meaning they looked away from evidence that it was false. And it is a very high standard. Here's the thing, though. Um, When you simplify the issues in play, I think you make it a lot easier to prove it. When you have this sort of cloud of issues that you have to prove, it gets much easier to kind of confuse or razzle-dazzle the jury. It gets a lot easier for them to say, you know, this is such a mess that they just haven't proven it. To the extent you can narrow anything to smaller issues, narrower issues, you make it much easier for a jury to understand. And, and that's a big step in winning your case. There have also been some uh, – there was a pretrial hearing uh, this week uh, subsequent to the release of this ruling on the motions for summary judgment. Judge Eric Davis also sanctioned Fox News on Wednesday, uh, saying that they had failed to turn over evidence in a timely manner to Dominion, including some evidence about Rupert Murdoch's direct involvement in the management of Fox News. Uh, That's an issue uh, because there's this question of whether they can rope Fox Corporation, uh, run by Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, into this lawsuit against uh, Fox News Network, which is a separate corporate entity. The judge had very stern words for Fox, saying this is very serious, that he was concerned that there had been misrepresentations to the court, uh, and saying that if they needed to redo any depositions uh, because of the material that was turned over late, that Fox would need to make every effort to make the necessary people available, and those would be done at Fox's expense. And that's coming right before the start of the trial. The uh, jury selection is supposed to start Thursday uh, of this week, uh, probably the day that you're listening to this podcast, and uh, the trial is actually supposed to start on Monday. Uh, So that's uh, another negative development for Fox. And so you had some more rulings from Judge Davis. And one of the things he said was that Fox is not going to be allowed to argue that it was just inherently newsworthy that the president of the United States was making these allegations. Uh, and that therefore, you know, when, when they reported on that, they, you know, it didn't matter whether the allegations themselves were true or false. The mere fact that the allegations were being made was news and that that should shield them from liability. Right. And part of this is kind of 
Fox's argument that all we did was report a newsworthy event, the president making this allegation. But really, the, the reason they lost on that issue in the summary judgment motion was that in so many of the statements, they're not just reporting it, they're saying things that support and endorse it. And I think mm-hmm. that's why they're losing on this issue. It would be a very different case if they had simply reported the president has made this allegation, he hasn't offered any evidence of it. Instead, they were you know, bringing it out and strongly implying that it was true. Do you believe the argument that Fox is making here that basically that if Dominion were to win this lawsuit, it would be tremendously damaging to the ability of news outlets to cover disputes and allegations that they I mean, Fox contended in some of its earlier filings, that you could just as well have sued CNN and MSNBC and the Associated Press and all these other news outlets that also reported on Donald Trump making these allegations and that how can you cover things like allegations of sexual misconduct against Andrew Cuomo, when you as the outlet do not know whether those allegations are true. Is, is Fox right that there's a, a threat to free speech here? Well, there's a threat if this isn't litigated right and if it generates some sort of appellate decision that gives a very broad standard for what it means to endorse somebody's public accusation. You remember that generally uh, you know, trial court rulings have limited power as precedents. They don't get cited a lot. Uh, often they don't generate published opinions. And uh, just the fact that someone sued and won is not like a legal precedent in other cases. What would generate more of a risk to free speech is if this got appealed and the Court of Appeal issued some sort of decision that said basically that repeating Trump's allegations could be defamatory if you didn't do these three things and created some sort of test. That could certainly pose a threat. And I I think Fox, again, is trying to elide the difference between reporting on something and endorsing it. The evidence here has been pretty strongly that they were not just reporting the allegations had been made, but they were you know, affirmatively suggesting those allegations were true and getting behind them. Now, you could say certainly that this type of lawsuit, if it's successful, will encourage people to make that accusation against other news outlets to say, you know, you weren't just reporting, you were endorsing, and that will be a sort of disputed fact and it will encourage more litigation and that will chill free speech. So Fox's argument that it's a risk to free speech is not completely without merit, but on the other hand, you have to evaluate it in the context of Fox's behavior in this particular case. The judge also made some decisions about how they're going to do jury selection. Uh, and the the attorneys are going to be allowed to ask potential jurors about their news consumption habits, whether they watch Fox News, whether they avoid it. They won't be al- allowed to ask people how they voted. How would you expect the parties to approach jury selection in a case like this? Uh, frantically. <laughs> so <laughs> the, they will all have uh, tons of jury experts. Uh, they will have their carefully researched focus group information about what type of jury they want. They will be vigilant for people who want to get onto this case because of its political dimensions. Uh, they will be you know, going over uh, each juror's comments like it's a uh, holy writ or something, looking for a word that might suggest the juror's bias. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a very intense process. 
And this trial is in Wilmington, Delaware. So it's uh, this is a, a blue state and a blue county and a blue state, but not deep blue in the way that Manhattan is. So you might have a somewhat politically diverse jury pool here. Yes. And, you know, plenty of very good and honest people make their living doing, uh, you know, jury analysis and consulting on which jurors to pick. And you can really find a wide range of opinion from trial lawyers, whether it's all a lot of bullshit or not. Uh, I, I would say that I think that we probably uh, put more science into it than is really there and that uh, our belief that we know how jurors are going to act based on jury selection is, is probably more an article of faith than of science. Let's talk about goats. Uh, there is a goat law case that a lot of people have been asking us about. Uh, and this is uh, from California. Uh, Jessica Long uh, had her daughter, who's a minor, so she's identified in these court documents as EL. Uh, her daughter was raising a goat as part of a 4-H program in Shasta County uh, in Northern California. And this, this girl, EL, became quite attached to her goat named Cedar and did not wish to return the goat for slaughter, which is the normal way that this works in, the, in 4-H, these youth agricultural programs. Uh, and so Cedar had been sold at auction, but EL and her mother reached a private agreement with the buyer of the goat, uh, Brian Dolly, who's actually a state senator from the area. Uh, and he agree had agreed that they could buy the goat back and they were going to take the goat somewhere where it would live out its life, eating weeds on a farm, that sort of thing. The 4-H people, the, the Shasta County Fair Board, were, were very unhappy about this, in part because of statements that, uh, that the Longs were making about not just that they wished to keep cedar, but about generally that, you know, you shouldn't kill animals and slaughter them and, and eat their meat. Uh, and so rather than having a lawsuit or even just, you know, a, a private settlement where money is exchanged hands and they, and they basically buy the goat back... They sent the police. Uh, they got a warrant to seize the goat. They searched all over California for the goat in both Napa and Sonoma counties. And then after the, the goat was seized uh, and returned to the, the Fair Association, the goat was then slaughtered. And so people are obviously outraged about this, this, you know, drastic overreaction uh, to a young child who simply wanted to keep her, her goat. Um, but then the lawsuit uh, that the Longs have filed argues additionally that this was a violation of various constitutional rights of theirs, uh, that, that basically this was supposed to be a private civil dispute, that if they didn't perform on their contract to turn over the goat, you could sue them for damages, but you can't simply send the government to seize and kill the goat. Can, can you do that? Or were they within their rights to slaughter cedar? Well, that's probably going to turn on an analysis of the contracts that were signed and on the applications for search warrants and things uh, like that. So the the uh, longs are asserting the violations of Fourth Amendment rights, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure and due process rights and things like that. And those are going to turn on the facts. I do think it is highly dubious that they had the right to sort of be uh, judge, jury, and goat executioner and not only investigate whether there was some sort of crime, but then, you know, make the ultimate decision, uh, give the goat over to be slaughtered. I, honestly, this is a 
amazing amount of law enforcement attention and resources devoted to this. It's what you would expect if, you know, the goat had been specifically pledged for ritual slaughter to please the old ones. And if it got away, we were all going to die or something like that. (laughs) Um, It it really seems to be a largely cultural dispute. Um, What you have to know is that Shasta County is much more rural than the rest of California, much less diverse than the rest of California, and increasingly conservative. And specifically, increasingly uh, conservative in a sort of culture war type of way uh, with more far-right conservatives taking over the mechanisms of government in a way that very much alarms many Californians. So this kind of seems like the, you know, this kid is woke. The purpose of livestock is to kill them and eat them. You know, this concept that maybe you treat one like a valued pet is threatening to our way of life. And that's why we have this gigantic overreaction to this. It's also fairly uh, typical of sort of the type of power that can be exercised in small communities where, you know, you, you have some local official who basically decides that what's the point of having law enforcement if you can't use them to do whatever you want and, and you know, scratch whatever itch is on your soul at this particular moment. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how far uh, the case is going to go because this is a, a Section 1983 challenge, a violation of, of civil rights under color of law. And those uh, in these areas, due process and uh, the Fourth Amendment are, are generally very unfavorable for plaintiffs. And uh, often the defendants are cloaked in the doctrine of qualified immunity, which means that there has to be clear legal authority saying you can't do that. And uh, given the way courts tend to interpret that, there's probably not a, a lot of authority saying don't go grab and kill somebody's goat which makes it hard to sue them for it. But I see it more interesting as sort of a cultural uh, story than a legal one. Well, they also have a First Amendment claim. They claim that the, the, the re- as you note, that the reason that they went and snatched this goat, the reason they devoted all of these law enforcement resources to this is that they didn't like the viewpoint that the Longs were expressing about agriculture and animal rights. Um, is that a stronger ground to stand on than the Fourth Amendment claim? Well, that's, that's going to be up to proof. You'd have to prove that uh, they did something in retaliation for their speech and that it was the the main uh, reason they did it. So yeah, that I mean that's stronger than the other claims only because the law surrounding the First Amendment is stronger in these civil rights uh, statutes than it is for Fourth Amendment unreasonable search and seizure and and due process. That doctrine of qualified immunity is not wielded quite so harshly. So that's somewhat stronger. On all of this, you know, the question is going to be what are the damages and what's at the end of the road? Although notably in a 1983 case, the plaintiff can get attorney fees if they win. Mm Mm-hmm. When, when you say the, the high bar that's created here by qualified immunity, that you, you have to show that it was basically obvious that they were not allowed to do the thing that they did. One of the things that the plaintiffs argue here is first they argue, we owned this goat. And if we failed to perform on a contract as to what to do with the goat, that's a civil matter. It doesn't mean that we have stolen the goat from someone. But even if the goat was stolen, uh, then once the state has seized it, the goat is evidence in a what would presumably be a criminal proceeding about the theft of the goat. And therefore, you obviously can't slaughter the goat. You're destroying the evidence that you went to search for that you said you needed for a criminal proceeding. Is that not sufficiently obvious that, you know, you're not that if you've seized an animal as evidence in a case, you can't kill it? No, I don't think it is 
sufficiently obvious to make it an easy win. You have to understand the qualified immunity doctrine is a judge-created doctrine to protect law enforcement, and that in the area of the Fourth Amendment search and seizure, it is wielded in a way that makes it extremely difficult to hold people accountable for law enforcement excesses. And the, the, you know, the joke among lawyers is that, well, yes, we have a case saying that you can't beat the suspect with a nightstick. But do you have one saying that a cop wearing a green sock on a Wednesday can't beat the suspect <laughs> with a nightstick? That's kind of the way that that the law goes, and sometimes to a, a truly ludicrous extent. So I, I think that probably, as you suggested, Josh, the, the First Amendment approach might be the one with the fewest qualified immunity problems, just in the sense that even just launching this investigation and doing these raids might be sufficient to deter an ordinary citizen from speaking out on an issue. So if you can prove that basically they launched this huge investigation and uh, went and took the goat and all that was retaliatory, then uh, that's probably the strongest part of the case. That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Uh, if you want to become a paying subscriber, you can hear our follow-on conversation about the Manhattan DA's indictment of Donald Trump. We have some questions from listeners uh, who have some arguments about why the evidence uh, of Donald Trump's guilt in this case might be stronger than we've given it credit for. We, you know, we talked a lot about the John Edwards problem, the extent to which you're relying on the testimony of Michael Cohen to prove that Donald Trump made these payments to Stormy Daniels specifically for a campaign purpose. There are some indications in the statement of facts that came from Alvin Bragg about other evidence that he might have, statements from other people who were involved in conversations about the payments uh, that American media uh, made to Karen McDougal and also to a doorman at uh, Trump Tower who had allegations about Donald Trump, conversations they may have had about Trump's desire to delay making these payments until after the election, in which case he might not have needed to make them at all if he had lost the election. We're still not convinced that this is a strong case, uh, but some listeners and, and also some other writers on the internet raised some interesting points here uh, and bring up some possibilities uh, about how this, this case might be stronger than it looks on first glance. And so Ken and I uh, talked through some of that and what we will be looking for as this proceeds. So again, if you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber, and you'll get that episode and uh, all the future ones. <laughs>